now it's it's almost hard to imagine that it's already day seven of the Global Movement Summit. And thank you so much for tuning in. Whether you've been here from day one, from the Big Bang shebang, or you've come along and our paths have crossed, or perhaps we're just meeting for the very first time right now. You're, you're in for a treat. I keep saying that, but I really believe that you are. And I'm blessed to have such a beautiful panel of peers hold the space with me and have the conversation that is going to help you shift the way that you do business, branding, relationships, lead the world, and take your purpose to the global stage. So with that, our next guest is Jasan Sorrells, who you may have actually heard him on the Supernova podcast if you have been following me from from the get-go. He's a phenomenal speaker, activist, really close to his heart. And, you know, when we recorded that conversation last year and when we reconnected for the Global Movement Summit, we realized that that was actually the best conversation to have because it really speaks into the invitation to greatness and getting out of your own sweet way and things that really push the needle. I I say that a lot in the summit, but it's really about the things that are shifting. We're in the shift age. We're in a new way of doing things. And if we're not innovative in our ways of doing things, in the ways that we connect, engage, transmit, transform, and build those relationships with service providers, with partners, with clients, with with our tribe, really, then we're going to get lost in the black hole. We're not going to be able to see the magic and the beauty of the nebula and the possibilities that come from that. So the big thing that um, Jasan and I chatted about in the last one is a message that's really close to his heart. And I thought it was such a beautiful topic given the Global Movement Summit. I mean, how, how perfect is this? He, he's constructed the ultimate title, and that is Pioneering Innovative and Entrepreneurial Solutions to Peace Building. So before we, so without any further ado, I think it's time we, we get this party started and we really start making things happen. So here's to that conversation and here's to sharing this space with you. The biggest reason you're not getting what it is that you really want is because you're getting in your own sweet way. Every morning you have a choice. And the choice is either to go to war with yourself, to press the snooze button on the dreams that you really want to manifest, or doing the work and making it happen. This is Lana Ski, hostess of the Supernova podcast. And this is your invitation to greatness. Jason, welcome to the Supernova podcast. It is so great to have you here. Hi, Lena. Thanks for having me on the Supernova podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Uh-huh. So awesome. Uh, and just to kind of give the listeners in for an idea of what they're going to be expecting today, we're chatting to a pioneering 
innovative entrepreneur that's creating solutions for peace building. How amazing is that? Peace building is an absolutely amazing field, Lena. There are so many folks that are in the field of peace building um, and peacemaking. There are mediators. There are conflict resolution um, skills trainers. There are negotiators, there are arbitrators, uh, there are lawyers, there are social workers. It's almost a field that has something for everybody. And I'm very excited to be offering pioneering, irreverent, and entrepreneurial solutions in this space. And I can't wait to tell you and your listeners all about it. And I think there's just such a need for this. I mean, we're just waking up to this global consciousness of what, what are we getting in our own sweet way? Why are we creating this inner conflict? And that there is another way of doing business and doing life. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, us getting in, us getting in our own way. I mean, what I see when I look out into, into the world, and I actually was just blogging about this, um, this weekend, and I blog about this regularly, um, uh, on my, on my blog, the HSCT communication blog. Uh, but I, I, I talk about sort of how people have trouble getting, even mediators, even professionals have trouble getting out of their own way in order to make peace. And you do, you look at the world, you know, the, the places where we're at, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, issues with uh, currently, you know, Ebola, um, you know, in the United States and, and all over the world, um, Iraq war, Iran war, ISIS, <laughs> ISIL, whatever it is we're calling it these days, you know, <laughs> we've got a, we've got a lot of global, global conflict issues. And then, of course, we have issues with climate change and environmental issues. And finally, the rapid pace of technology providing disruptions all over the place. Um, somebody, ironically enough, well, not ironically enough, but somebody uh, I heard in an interview the other day that uh, it seems as though online the social contract between people has broken down. Um, I actually blogged about that again this week, you know. So I'm I'm curious and, and I'm excited because I think these are very, very exciting times for peace builders. And I think we owe it to ourselves to sort of get into those spaces. And we owe it to ourselves as a field to get into those spaces. Um, where we never really have been before and really start to make change. Mm, for sure. And, and being somebody who works with a lot of conflict resolution, what have you kind of seen been the main triggers of, of inner conflict and things that get in people's ways? First off, you got to you know, define inner conflict and outer conflict. So outer conflict is the outer manifestations of what we see. That's the acted-out behavior. Um, and usually the acted out behavior is, is a sign of a deeper inner turmoil. Now, what I usually tell clients that I work with, and I work with a, a wide variety of organizations and institutions and also individuals one-on-one, -on -one, but what I tell folks is um, I don't do therapy, and I'm not a therapist. Mm -hmm. I'm also not a, not a priest or a religious person or a pastor, although I, I do have a, have a religious and a spiritual belief system that I come from. But again, I'm not, you know, staking a claim in that space and saying, hey, let's move from that space. Mm -hmm. Unless my client is a church or a religious organization, and then we sort of work from there. But usually that's a sign of a deeper inner turmoil when somebody has something going on. And the acted out behavior is the residual effect that we see from that internal, that internal turmoil. And so what I really try to do through human services consulting and training and through the work that I do with my clients is to try to get to um, that inner turmoil. One of the things that I always say to my clients is cognitively, and we know this from the advances that we've made in the field of neurobiology um, and the amazing um, things that we found out through neuroimaging, that we learn patterns of, of resolution and response um, in childhood. That's where those things begin. And, and one of the things that I tell my clients is everything we ever learned about conflict, we learned in kindergarten. <laughs> you know, we learned that first. And 
what we learned in kindergarten was either then reinforced at home or not reinforced at home. And so we get that inner push and pull, we get that inner turmoil, and then we grow up, we think we're okay, and then we lose our mind when, you know, someone drops a coffee cup on our desk when we're 35. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's amazing, it's just a little, little trigger that can just spark that off for you. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, listen, the brain is an amazing thing. The amygdala and the limbic system and how everything is sort of tied together in there along with the neocortex. And the emotion of fight, well, not the emotion, the reaction of flight, of fight or flight comes first. And, and you know, you got the, then you got the emotional response and then you have the language last. So we're sort of, we're sort of, uh, flopping around as it were to find the words for those triggers that happened and finding the words to, to getting to explain those triggers to other people is a huge part of the communications issues that I, that I talk about and deal with with my clients. I think that point that language being lost is very pivotal because that's where our understanding is. That's where we form concrete ideas of things. That's where we really ground it. So when we're just reacting or responding or fleeing from something, we're not able to process it in that way. Correct. And therefore, Correct. a lot of the stuff becomes irrational. It's just a reaction to the situation. Exactly. Well, what's the, what's the, you used a great word there, Lena irrational what's the what's the one triggering word you could always say in an argument to somebody um when they're behaving in a way that, that you think is appropriate you know you're behaving irrationally <laughs> and they're, well, both, they're all racist <laughs> and, you that know, normally you, causes more trouble than it's worth exactly you know you've automatically lost the argument you're done it's it's over this is what i tell my clients you know so we have these systems in our heads and we have them and they've been developed through long years and years and years of evolutionary biology and years and years and years of adaptation to things like a wildebeest running towards us. Well, when a wildebeest is running towards you, your brain doesn't say, hey, let's stick around to see if we can reason with the wildebeest. It says, you know, get your legs in gear and move. Let's go. Let's move it. Um, and then afterward, after you put some distance between yourself and the wildebeest, you know, you stop, you catch your breath, and finally... You know, the emotional hijacking and the emotional flooding and all the chemicals um, come down, come down, come down. You know, the adrenaline comes down um, and you're sitting there and you're breathing and you're on the Serengeti and you're looking around. And now you can actually say, oh my gosh, that wildebeest was almost on me. Whew, I'm glad I got away from that. Well, unfortunately, your amygdala doesn't know the difference between a wildebeest charging you and your boss coming to you saying, if you don't get this this twelve hundred page this twelve hundred word memo done by Friday at five PM, you're gonna be fired and then walking out. <laughs> your your amygdala interprets both of those external stimuli in the exact same way. And that's what conflicts you get. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a conversation that I was having with a really good friend of mine, Tracy. And um one of the quotes that she put out there, I'm not gonna quote it, but the, the essence of it is we constantly face with these fears, whether it's the bus, whether it's the rhino, whether it's a new project that we're putting out there or the business plan, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's part of our, our daily life. It's part of our daily evolution. Sometimes it's a lesson for us. Sometimes it's an experience. Whatever that is, it's there. But it doesn't mean that it has to be there and that we have to act on that impulse. I agree. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think one of the struggles that we get into is our communication tools have changed and and we're in the midst of um and I blog a lot about this too and I talk about it in in speeches and presentations that I give um and in groups with whom I work or with which I work um I talk about sort of the 
the nature of the transition that we are going through right now uh, at a global level, not just in the United States, but at a global level, um, we are transitioning from being in a space where the physical and physically building something is is sort of the, the greatest pinnacle of our achievement. And we're transitioning towards a, a space where technology and our tools have allowed us to take the physical things and really make them virtual and really build on ideas. Well, when you build on ideas, then all kinds of other types of stimuli become increasingly important to keep out in order to mitigate conflict. Um, just as an example, I was working with a client recently and I was presenting um, and the client, one of the, one of the individuals in the audience, an older gentleman in his sixties, he raised his hand and he said, um, listen, you know, I used to grow up with the, with the idea that sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now I see these people coming in who are, who are much younger than I am in their, in their, you know, twenties and thirties, and they're very sensitive about words and you got to step around them. And he said, and he asked me very bluntly, you know, what's up with that? Why is that happening? And I said, well, you grew up in a time and you came of age in a time when um, moving from farm to field um, and moving from field to factory and then moving from factory to the suburbs was the great transition. Now we're having another great transition, but it's a virtual transition. And it's not moving from farm to suburb. That's not the whole transition. Now the transition is moving from physically building um, and physically developing something to virtually developing something. And when you move from using your body to using your mind, then words can hurt you because those leave psychic um, and psychological scars um, that can impact how you create ideas, which then impacts how you create value and how you add value to the world. Now, he wasn't satisfied with that answer, but... <laughs> but it, really? <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll listen to it in the podcast and he'll get it. He'll, he'll get it, exactly. And he kind of pushed back a little bit, a little bit on me with that. But that's, that's really where we're at now. And so you see a lot of issues in, um, in our school systems around bullying. Um, you see the instances of cyberbullying increasing and people becoming more sensitive to that. Workplace bullying and workplace harassment, workplace anger issues becoming more and more of a, becoming more of work, more and more of a concern in a way that they weren't 50, 60, 70 years ago. 70 years ago, and people weren't really worried if you were angry in the workplace. I mean, if you're angry, that was you problem, and just put the put the square widget in the round hole and then go home. Nowadays, in, in an idea and in a virtual um, in virtual environments, I, where ideas matter more, those psychic and psychological scars of, of anger, um, trauma, conflict really matter. And this is a place where peace builders can really, really do some awesome work, as well as therapists and social workers. So, you know, I don't want to leave them out because. They're doing fabulous work as well in healing those scars. And as you speak about it, it really just reveals how much of a blessing and birth of a curse it is. It's a blessing because you really get to deal with the essence of what's really happening for you and you get to be seen and heard and understood. And the mind shift is around nurturing that or creating the space that does that. But obviously there is that heightened sensitivity where you're just not able to to deal with the, the skills that you need to be able to be thick-skinned or what's conventionally applicable. Right. Well, think of, think of the, when we think of a company and let's pick on it, let's pick on a giant multinational, um, uh, not really virtual. I don't want to say virtual, a giant multinational internet company. I'm thinking of one it begins with a G. 
Google. We'll go with them. Okay. okay. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? You know, we'll go with Google. Okay. Well, Google is is no, maybe notorious or infamous. I don't know if those are really words to use. They're, um, but they have a, a reputation in the business world, and they're giving, getting an even more of a larger reputation in the business world for how they recruit. Because they've realized that you can have four guys sitting around in the room coding the next great Google Maps or coding the next great Google Drive or, or whatever the next great Google product is. But if those four guys in hoodies can't really connect with each other other than about coding, it's a little bit of a problem. And if you look at um, tech companies that are releasing their their numbers on how many minorities and women they have um, actually working in their places of in their places of work, um, you see that the reason that particularly women don't really stay in tech um, is not because they are not as qualified as men. In some cases, they're more qualified than men. They just didn't feel appreciated. They didn't feel as though they fit into that environment, and that goes directly back to the idea of good conduct, it goes directly back to that idea of getting soft skills. And people think that soft skills are hard. Or, or people, I'm sorry, people think that soft skills are easy. Um, and I get that a lot. Empathy is easy. Conscientiousness is easy. Um, grit is easy. Um, overcoming failure and, 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 and attaining autonomy is easy. Or, or they think mistakenly that, oh, well, that's just something you get in school and you don't really have to work on that for the rest of your life. Because the hard thing is learning to code. No, actually, it's it's the reverse, and this is the philosophy that I take with my clients. It's the reverse. The easy thing is coding. I can teach you coding inside of ten minutes, maybe not ten minutes, but I I can teach you coding. You know, Um, but empathy, really having emotional intelligence. Daniel Goldman wrote about this twenty five years ago. Really having deep emotional intelligence, cognitive emotional intelligence. That's really hard, and that's a lifelong learning process. Again, a space where peace builders have plenty of space to be um, irreverent and entrepreneurial there. I mean, you, you can't go and get an MBA in any of these things right now. It, the skill set no. just, the skills are there and you need to learn it. And there are people who are putting the lessons out there. But mm-hmm. back then, we didn't know these things and we're constantly growing and evolving and discovering new ways of being empathetic, of mm-hmm. being revolutionary, of being innovative. Yes, we are constantly discovering new things. As I said, the field of neurobiology and the field of neuroscience is has advanced light years again because of technology. And I don't want to I don't want to degrade or, or take away anything from technology. I'm not a luddite, you know. I'm very very much in bed with Google, you know. <laughs> I'm all over the place. So you know, I'm I'm I understand the uses of technology and the need for technology. Um, but we have bad actors sometimes in social media. Um, and we have bad actors who are out there stealing, looking to steal your, your private data and sell it. And the reason we have these bad actors is because no matter how great our technology is, um, we cannot, we haven't changed the human heart. To, to paraphrase from Albert Einstein, you know, if I had known that, I would have become a watchmaker, right? Mm-hmm. You know? So, uh, but this is good. St- I mean, this is, this is good stuff. This is a good place to be. And I'm very excited about being here because collaboration, and good conduct have to go together in order for all of us to get along. I think that, no, I think I feel, I feel that if you don't work on empathy and those soft skills every day, either formally or informally, um, you're never going to catch yourself when you make a mistake. Case in point, let me tell you a story. So, 
I have I have three children. I have a I have a I have a nine year old. I have a four year old, and I have a seventeen year old. So there's there's huge gaps there. Mm. Um, but my my four year old and I we have great we have great you know sort of simpatico. You know we go and my my four year old and my nine year old are girls, and my seventeen year old is a boy. So my my, my four year old and I we have great simpatico. I was watching TV the other day, taking a day off on Saturday, spent some time with her. And uh, she wanted to watch some show that she likes on Saturday morning television. So we were sitting there watching the show and she's splayed out on me and she's laying there and she's having a good time. <laughs> okay. And so that's that emotional connection with her. Mm-hmm. My 17 year old is very rational, um, or at least he claims that he is. But then he has this deep inner core of, and he's a gamer and he's very involved in social media. He's, he's the example that I see of sort of a post post millennial, you know, who's, who really came up and grew up in a, in a world where there was never not such a thing as Facebook. And for, for him, that's his world. Like I, I tell him about the mid-1990s, and, and he stares at me like I came from another planet. <laughs> you know? um, and so he, he's very much rational, but then he'll see something on YouTube that'll irritate him, and then he's just he's off to the races, you know? But my nine-year-old, my nine-year-old's in that weird sort of in-between space, and she's in the fourth grade, and there's all this drama in the fourth grade. So when I when she comes home from school at the at the dinner table, she wants to dish. She wants to dish about things that are going on in fourth grade. You know, she wants to dish about this little girl here and this little girl there, and this person is saying this thing and this person is saying that thing. And those are moments where I sit and I listen to her, and then. I try to give her those tools of empathy and conscientiousness and really work on those kinds of things because she's not learning those lessons in school. School isn't teaching her that. The school isn't teaching her active listening. The school isn't teaching her how to, you know, slow down and really engage with people. Um, the school isn't teaching her that maybe spreading this story shouldn't be spread. Maybe the gossip should stop with you. You know, gossip and storytelling, maybe that should stop with you. Maybe that's something you should, you shouldn't, you know, be passing along. I actually told her the other day, listen, when you get a story, you need to tell somebody, listen, I appreciate that you told me this, but I can't pass this story along. It's going to stop with me. And also yeah. that distinction between gossip and storytelling, that they're such different entities. Oh, they are. They are. But she doesn't know that. She doesn't know those those granular distinctions. She's just a mountain of just stuff spewing out. Um, and so it's it's those everyday things, working on that all the time. And for me, myself, I check my, I check myself. I do. I check myself with my kids. So every interaction that I have, I go back in my mind afterward when I'm taking a breather after the wildebeest has run up on me. Um, <laughs> after I'm taking a breather, I, I sit and I, I think back on that interaction and I try to break it down moment by moment in my head and go, how could I have acted better here? How could I have acted differently here? And what is that going to look like? I always tell clients, listen, I do everything that I recommend. I do everything that I consult with you and that I educate you on. I do. I apply all those things in my personal life, and I get them wrong about seventy-five percent of the time. The other twenty-five percent of the time, I get it right. But the difference between your seventy-five percent and my seventy-five percent is that I know I'm getting it wrong, and I'm trying to go back and fix it. You don't know you're getting it wrong, and you keep doing the exact same thing over and over again, which is why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's such a powerful distinction. I mean, I've also had those moments with the wildebeest kind of coming up, and when you do actually break it down and you realize this thing isn't flooding you. It isn't this avalanche that's actually coming through to you, but it's a collection of little nuances and little things that are coming through. Then you can mm-hmm. see it as a chihuahua or a poodle or something completely different. Correct. Yes. Kind of yes. Go, Everything is not a wildebeest. Oh, <laughs> yes. That's what yes. it actually is. 
Exactly. <laughs> it changes everything. And then for business, it's like, oh, now I can actually manage. Well, the number one, I, I, and I always quote this story, or I quote the statistic. Um, Dale Carnegie did a survey, um, oh gosh, probably a couple of years ago now, or it might have been in 2013. Anyway, it said, and, and the survey um, basically was measuring um, employee engagement. And one of the things that the survey found was that something around 26% of, on average, 26% of people in the workplace um, are actively disengaged with their work. That means that they are coming into work and they're actively not there. And of that 26%, 13% were actively angry coming to work, like actively just activated, as, as one of my old colleagues would say, actively activated walking in the door and are activated throughout the day, and then are activated walking out the door. Now, that's a huge problem because when you talk about determining what's the wildebeest and what's not, um, and to, to sort of push that metaphor even more, when you're determining that, um, how do you reach those people? And one of the key ways to reach those people that was found was having a good supervisory relationship. Well, if your supervisor is coming to work angry and you're coming to work angry, <laughs> how do you how do you granulate out all of the anger so that your supervisor can hear your anger and listen to you empathetically and utilize active listening skills, which is one of the biggest things that I work on with uh, with supervisors and in the workplace, but really working on those active listening skills to make a better workplace environment for you. You know how do you how do you do that? And so. Um, organizations and how organizations develop. And listen, we, we use this term organizations as if a building over there is this monolithic, monolithic thing with no, no people in it. It's just this thing, right? Mm. And we use that to sort of put psychic distance in between ourselves and that thing over there. But that thing has people in it. That building has people in it. <laughs> and those people have brains and they have hearts and they have souls and they need to be watered and they need to be nurtured and they need to be helped the same way that you do when you go and intersect with them. And so how are we, this is the hard work. How are we, um, working with each other? And some businesses and some feedback that I've gotten from businesses that I've worked with and organizations that would like to work with me say, well, a lot of what you're talking about seems very, uh, touchy feely or seems very spiritual. I say, no, really, when you break it down, you're active listening. If your supervisors exercise active listening in a regular one-on-one -on -one with an employee, you could save X thousands of dollars per year and be an industry leader. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, quality and production costs and all those kinds of things are narrowing. The gap is narrowing, 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 narrowing. But the gap is not narrowing on people. And if you have better people working for you, the gap between you and your competitors increases tenfold. And also just goes back to that age-old distinction, which I think is shifting, where you have this whole idea of the boss, which is quite your pragmatic structure, versus your leader, where your leader is now bringing in those active listening skill sets and, and really trying to engage and build a community and build that tribe and that organization, not as on a secular building brick level, but as people and as a collective. Mm -hmm. Well, I love I love the term tribe, and I, I understand how it's weighted in the, the post-colonial and colonial and pre-colonial social justice. I understand all the weight that comes with the word tribe. Mm. But Seth Godin, the marketer Seth Godin, uses that term, and he's really talking about 
the people who are not in the audience that's applauding, and everybody knows what the audience is in marketing, you know, and those are the people that like your Facebook page or sometimes share what you have or sometimes leave a, com- leave a comment. Most often they're the people that are, that are in, the, in the stadium just sort of lurking around and they're not really giving you applause, right? <laughs> those aren't people that are in your tribe. No, definitely it's, not. Yeah. Your tribe is people who are actively seeking you out, joining with you, giving you not only the pats on the back, but giving you the revenue that you need to continue and are also giving you the um, the connections and giving you the collaboration that you need in order to continue to do your work. So your tribe can be very, very small these days, but you can make huge impact. And that's a huge difference. Again, mm-hmm. when I work with organizations, I tell them, listen, you have three generations of workers in the workplace now. You have your classic baby boomers. You have your Generation X type folks, and those tend to be individuals between the ages of 41, 42, 43, somewhere in there, and late 50s. And then you have people who are your millennials. Um, and of course, you have your weird in-betweeners like myself. I was born in 1979, so I'm 35. I'm in between the Gen Xers and the millennials. Some days I wake up, I feel more like a Gen Xer. Other <laughs> days I wake up, I feel more like a millennial, you know. And my youngest sister, my younger sister's. Um, are in their, in their early, not early, in their mid twenties and early thirties. So they're very much millennials. But my point is that you have those three generations in the workplace. And what's happening is the, the communication between those three generations has to, has to shift. It has to change because guess what? Millennials will leave you and they won't tell you, they'll leave your organization and they won't tell your organization why they're leaving. Uh, and not only will they not tell you, but they've already got a side business set up, so they don't need the boss man over there because they really wanted a collaborative relationship with the boss man. But they they got that collaborative relationship through their their tribe that they are building on Facebook mm-hmm. and through their tribe that they're building on Instagram and through the tribe that they're building on Snapchat. They've got that collaborative relationship. They don't need you. Oh, and by the way, they figured out a way to pick up pennies from those from those tribe members too. So they really don't need you. And now that disconnect has happened and, and boomers don't really understand that. And they're sort of befuddled by that. And Gen Xers are sort of looking at this going, wow, you know what? If I'd had that, I would have done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, um, so this is, this is interesting what's happening in the workplace and how the boss man is, is having to, you're right, having to shift his focus. And it's, it's happening slowly. Um, it's happening at a micro level and at a macro mm-hmm. level very, very slowly. But those shifts are happening, and I'm I'm very happy to be sort of front and center of, of where this is happening. And I hope to hope to do more about be more of that be more in that place in the future. Well, and I think it hasn't been around earlier because we didn't have the tools. Look, I founded uh, my consulting business and, and education business, human services consulting and training. I founded this business about two years ago, <laughs> and I founded it with the idea with with the idea that. Giving people tools to build a better future and, and to build boats rather than to fix leaky ones is really, really the core, one of the core principles here. And really doing it well is, is also one of the core principles. Um, I also believe that entrepreneurship is the way of the future. Um, because look, when I, when I talk about the social contract breaking down, I'm not just talking about, um, the, the, the good conduct contract breaking down. I'm talking about financial contracts mm-hmm. between people and organizations breaking down and people in governments breaking down. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a government that goes into default, like in Greece, you know, or you have a, a government that cannot pay um, for the promises that it has made, and increasingly politicians 
and policy leaders um, tend to be taken less seriously by audiences these days. And there's a crisis of that going on right now in the United States Mm -hmm. um, where we are looking at our political leaders of all party stripes. It doesn't matter. This is this is irrelevant. But the average person is looking at that at those political parties going, you have no idea what's going on out here. You know, you have no idea what's going on with my neighborhood. You have no idea what's going on when I post something on Facebook. As a matter of fact, if anything, you're scared of it and you're not engaging with it because you don't want to be exposed too much because you can't control the message. Well, in a space where the leaders can't control the message, entrepreneurship has to come in to fill those gaps because how are you going to guarantee your own future? So I started my business because I wanted to build something that I had my hands in. And so when I go to an organization and I negotiate with an organization, I'm on a level playing field with them. If they hire me, they hire me. If they don't, maybe hire somebody else. You know, um, I hope that you hire somebody else to, to, to do what it is that you need to, to have done. Um, but that level playing field never would have existed 10 years ago, much less 30 years ago or, or, or 40 years ago when my father first got into the work world and my mother got into the work world. It just didn't, it didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. so we've got these technological tools and I believe entrepreneurship is the way of the future. And again, that shifts the nature of how I as an individual intersect with organizations. And that also creates conflict, you know, because it's not the fact that I'm leaving to go work on my Etsy, you know, store. <laughs> it's not the fact that I'm leaving to do that. It's how I left. You know, did I leave sort of in the in the, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Half Baked. Um, no. It had Dave Chappelle in it back in the day. There's a great scene where a guy, the guy's quitting at the, the fast food restaurant that he, um, that he works at. And it's, there's some expletives in there. I won't say all the expletives, but basically what he does is he curses out about five people in, in a, he's in a customer service area and he curses out about five people and then he drops the mic and he says, I'm out and he leaves. <laughs> you know, it's sort of the classic, I hate you, boss man. You know, forget this job. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. versus and you can leave in that way or you can leave in a way where you say listen um thank you for the opportunity to really advance in my other thing here i learned some very very wonderful skills but you're never gonna let me go where i want to go but this other thing is so thank you for your time i appreciate it now let me go over here and do that which is actually the way to go i mean because that allows you to create leadership in your life in your business in your marketing and it gives them a sense of purpose as well because they've contributed to you rather than, again, conflict. Correct. Exactly. And so why? But, but, but 35, 40 years ago, how many people had the dream of take this job and shove it? Like, where did that, where did that idea come from? Well, that idea came from the, the fact that you couldn't leave <laughs> on, on good terms because you needed that job and it was the only job in your town. And so you had the internal conflict. And how did you how did you deal with that? Well, you went home and you had addiction, or you went home and you um, had issues with your family and, and your immediate family, or even your extended family, or you went home and you developed bad habits. You know, um, it's no it's no surprise that the divorce rate, not only in America but also worldwide, has sort of kind of begun to level off a little bit. Um, post the 1970s, because it was the 1970s where not only feminism, but also the changing nature of industry forced people to make decisions that they didn't want, they never previously made. And this is, this is huge. This is huge. So, you know, we're in the middle of, we're in the middle of a giant tectonic social shift and we, 
like my daughter, my daughter's four, you know, my youngest daughter is four. She's going to live at least until 2100, if not a little bit further than that, if, if technology is to be uh, believed in biology is to be believed um, in, in the lengthening of life. If Ray Kurzweil mm. finally gets his singularity going, <laughs> you know, she's going she's gonna to live to the middle of the next century. Well, she's going to see things and have opportunities that we can only begin to imagine and that we are at the beginning of. And so nice. I, it's, I guess it's very, very exciting time. So, you know, that's, that's why I started my business. I'm very excited to be, to be working in this space. And, um, you know, I also want to give people the better tools. Look, I have a background as a mediator. Okay, mm. I have a background as a children, or not children, a family and divorce mediator, and children are very much involved with that. And I've sat in mediations and um, sat across the table from people that used to love each other and now don't. And I can talk a lot about fifty thousand foot philosophy and active listening and empathy, but when you're there at the ground level at the table with people that don't have these skills. Um, it's almost as if you've been called in to fix a leaky boat mm-hmm. and you're, and you're doing what you can to put the boards onto the boat and hammer them in and hoping that the boat sails and that everything's going to go, going to go well. And there are a lot of mediators that do a lot of wonderful work in that area that are great boat repairers there. And we need, we need boat repairers. We really do. I absolutely believe that. But here's the button. We also need people who are going to teach people how to build better boats. Of course. You know, how do you teach people to build a better boat? How do you give people the skills to make better decisions so they don't wind up in a leaky boat in the first place? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I always say is when all you have is a hammer, every failure looks like a nail. <laughs> Beautiful. You know, so let's build a better, let's give, let's give you more tools in there. Let's give you a saw and some wrenches and a couple of screwdrivers you know, let's give you a couple of socket wrenches. Let's give you the nice, uh, you know, the nice uh, pitchfork and sledgehammer. That way, you know which tools, and give you the knowledge and the training so that you can use, use every tool in your toolbox. Mm. That's that's what I'm all about. Mm. And it also inspires not only the work that you do and how you show up in the conversation, but it also inspires the people that you're working with to be more human in those moments. Mm-hmm. To not be on autopilot, to not be reacting to situations. And I think that's what the world really needs right now. Whether or not we agree with each other, um, I, I'm, I'm almost to the point where I say agreement is irrelevant. I'm almost there. I haven't quite told that to a client yet, but I'm, I'm getting close to it. And maybe saying it on the podcast, maybe this is, this is, this is the moment, but agreement almost is irrelevant. It's really about listening and accepting multiple truths. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, Dr. Maura Cullen has done a lot of amazing work in the field of social justice, and she's she's a huge social justice um, advocate and and a warrior for social justice, and has done amazing things. You can look up her look up her books on Amazon. Great resource. But um, Dr. Cullen, you know, one of the established things that she says in in how to deal with dumb things that well intentioned people say is there are multiple truths, and when you tell people that they sort of step back a little bit and they're like, what? There's multiple truths. Really? Well, yes, there's your truth and there's my truth and there's that truth over there and that truth over there. And Lena has a truth and my daughter has a truth and my wife has a truth and all these truths have to come together. And it's not about agreement on the truths. It's about getting the truths to come together Mm. and realize that these are the truths. Let's listen and let's figure out, what are the common things that we where we can collaborate, and then where are the things where we can say, you know, we can't collaborate there, 
and that's okay as long as they're not damaging and destructive and destructive it's the damaging and destructive part when somebody's truth becomes a dogma then we got a problem and the great thing about that is we get to collect the fragments of everybody's take on things everybody's belief system everybody's truths and realities and we kind of get to create a collective consciousness around that and a collective idea of what's really going on yes yes well and you know what I still, um, I believe that identities mean things, and, and I believe that um, we we set ourselves up inside of our identities as if they are the only truth possible, when in reality there are multiple truths, right? And this is what I just finished saying. So if our identity and our truth is just one truth among many truths, um, then it's not about, like I said, getting that agreement part. It's about getting that collaboration together and right and wrong again unless there's destructiveness when there's destructiveness destructiveness is wrong let's be clear on that yeah but when when there's not destructiveness when there's just disagreement okay let's have a healthy disagreement mm-hmm. let's have that healthy disagreement and again this is not this is not a soft skill this is a hard thing to learn and to do which is why so few people are diplomats <laughs> you know <laughs> they're not cloning henry kissinger <laughs> you, know, you know say what you want about where where he wound up with his truths uh, and where he is politically but they're not cloning henry kissinger you know it's not as if there are forty thousand diplomats running around uh running around out here um you know and they're not uh, they're not cloning mother Teresa or the dalai lama you know this is why it's so hard to get to that space where you can accept somebody else's truth um, and not be impacted in that, in your own truth and still live out, walk out your own truth successfully. So, because we still exist in this area where people want to win. And this is why people go, instead of going to mediation, sometimes people go to litigation. People want that person in the robe to hit, you know, to gavel, boom, you know, you're right, you're wrong. This person is terrible and was horrible and you owe this person money. Like we still want that because we're still trapped in the in the idea of 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 right and wrong on truths versus looking for right and wrong on on acts and behaviors um and and like I said dogmas and ideologies and and we need to we gotta we gotta collectively like I said collective consciousness I love that raise our collective consciousness wow that sounds that sounds very sixties of me <laughs> raise the collective consciousness <laughs> you know we gotta we gotta get it up there um I can't say of any other way, at least from where I'm sitting, to create peace. I mean, that that's the only way that, that seems possible to do it, when you're in that space and in that collective energy. Everything else exactly. is just drawing lines in the sand and saying, this is mine, this is yours, this is my right, this is your wrong, and mm-hmm. there's no winning there. Even the winner <laughs> doesn't win. Even the winner doesn't win. Exactly, yeah. Well, I'm I'm fascinated by... um. As interesting as a person of peace, I'm fascinated by by war. I, I am. I'm fascinated by how wars start and why wars start. Um, I'm fascinated by how people prepare for war, how countries, um, organizations, institutions, and not only on the, the financial side of how people prepare for how organizations prepare for war, and, and particularly nation states, but also the um, the physical side, and then of course the sides that we don't talk about, the emotional side and the spiritual side. Um, and the psychological scars, um, and the psychological preparation that has to go on for people to engage with war. And I say that because I'm, right now I'm doing a lot of reading around, um, uh, World War One. So I'm reading John Keegan books and it's, you know, it's the 100th anniversary of World War One, 2014, you know, so a lot of, 
a lot of uh, European, uh, I listen to a lot of European podcasts around World War One. Now, in this country, in the United States, World War One was a blip. Like it's our our big our big war was World War Two. That was our big war. You know, mm-hmm. um, World War One. Woodrow Wilson, peace in our time, or not peace in our time, but Woodrow Wilson, you know, I will not get you into war, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it kind of gets sloughed off, and we don't get a whole lot about that in the history books um, or in our history classes um, in, in grade school and in high school. We don't really get a whole lot of it. Like, we know about the Somme, and we know how important that battle was, um, and we get the Western Front. And then that's really, and, and we see the Mel Gibson movie Gallipoli, and then we're done. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're, we're done because you know. But this see for World War Two though, we get oh my gosh, I mean we get Steven Spielberg for World War Two, you know, <laughs> that's what we get <laughs> in, this, in this country. That's our our cultural our cultural memory is very much pegged to World War Two. Uh-huh. But World War One is very fascinating for me because of the preparations that went into war. And I talk about dem- diplomacy. Diplomacy failed in World War One. And it, and it failed because, and, and I mean, John Keegan has the idea that it failed because of train schedules and how fast you could get troops to the front, right? But I think I think it failed because psychologically, there was preparation that was that had already been made through writing and culture and ideology that sort of set up the last step, which was actually physically picking up a weapon and shooting somebody. That's always the last step of a conflict. It's never the first one. People think that it's the first one because, again, it's that acted-out anger, right? It's that manifestation. But it's not. People don't see sort of all the other little steps. And you mentioned this previously in our interview here. But all the little steps that go into creating that thing before that person finally steps up and goes, I'm going to shoot you, boom, done. Or or government or a nation state is going to send me out to shoot you, boom, done. We, we don't see all the little psychological and emotional and cultural things that go into creating that last moment, that final moment that we then see as the physical manifestation. That, to me, is absolutely fascinating. And so reading the authors that wrote, um, that wrote works and reading the philosophers that wrote works before World War I, um, reading, the, uh, reading the journalists and the historians before World War One that wrote about the state of Europe and the cultural state of Europe and the psychological state of Europe. And you can see how they're setting it up and setting it up and setting it up and setting it up and setting it up. So when it happens, it, you know, it came as a surprise to everybody, but it really shouldn't have. Yeah, as you say, that's the manifestation. It's the final act. It's the thing we see the most, but we never really see the behind-the-scenes piece of it. Mm-mm. No, we don't. And we... And because we, we don't always see, see it, it in hindsight, but I, exactly, yes, it is, yes, exactly. <sighs> hindsight, <laughs> hindsight, exactly, exactly. It's whatever it goes. Oh my God, really? Yeah. So you know, hindsight is uh, hindsight is is hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, that's the classic statement, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, unfortunately, I wish the foresight were twenty twenty, but it's not. <laughs> No. <laughs> well, so how can we do that, Jason? How can we create the foresight or at least push up those numbers? Like, what can we be doing today, right now, this week, yeah, to get those numbers yeah. up? What can we do right now to get those numbers up? Well, here's one thing we can do right now. And it's one thing that I always push. It's one thing I work with my kids on. It's one thing that I work on because I fail on it all the time, too. It's active listening, being here now. And 
let's not confuse active listening with non-defensive listening. Non-defensive listening is a totally different thing. Non-defensive listening happens after active listening. At, at, a, at, a, at a micro level, non-defensive listening happens when um, my partner has just finished telling me that I'm a horrible person <laughs> because I didn't pick up the milk. Like that's, that's when non-defensive listening has to happen because mm -hmm. I have to hear behind what my partner is saying. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have to not see the last manifestation and not be affected by that last manifestation. Instead, I have to go behind that and see that what my partner is really saying is I feel hurt that you didn't think enough to get that milk. And I feel hurt even deeper because I've been here all day taking care of the children and I feel as though you don't appreciate my efforts as in, in, in this partnership and you don't. And, 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 I, and even deeper than that, I had to take care of this kid that was screaming since like three o'clock in the morning. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's non-defensive listening. That's a, a second state kind of thing. Your first state kind of thing is active listening. Active listening is just shutting up and being there. Literally just shutting up and being there. and. The average American, and I think it's probably down, but the average American can only stand seven seconds of silence. Really? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And so active listening has to take place in those silences where you're watching other people's nonverbals, mm -hmm. where you're engaging with your own nonverbals, and where you wait and in a world where impatience and instantaneousness and what did you do for me yesterday are the primary drivers, patience and waiting is something that if I firmly believe this, if not even, not even, not even 90%, if, if 80% of the people that are in organizations and institutions worked on, if they absolutely worked on that, from the moment they got up in the morning with their partners to when they get into traffic to where they go to work to where they're at their, they're at their workspace to when they go pick up the kids to working on it with their kids to coming back home and working on it with their partner again and then going to bed. If you worked on that, you know, every single one of your waking 12 to 14 hours just actively listening to the people in your life, that moves the ball forward. Mm. That moves the ball down the field. Or down the pitch, depending upon your perspective. For sure. That's really powerful. It feels simple, but it's not. If it were, if it, it's simple. We, we confuse simple, I think. With easy. Simple with easy, yeah. Mm. It's simple, you know, but, you know, for Albert Einstein, physics was simple, right? <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> Bless him, right? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll update it a little bit. For Stephen Hawking, physics is simple. <laughs> you know, for for uh, for Michio Kaku, physics is simple, right? Uh -huh. or, or 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 I'll go a step further. I just I just finished listening to um the um Stephen um uh, Stephen Pinker book about the language of language of thought, the stuff of thought. Um, you know, linguistics. You know, linguistics is simple, right? You know, if you're Noam Chomsky or you have time to do the research, um, <laughs> linguistics is simple. Language is simple, right? But it's not, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. I have a four-year-old in my house. Again, I go back to her. She's learning language. She's putting together sentences in all kinds of different ways because for her, 
it's it's simple, right? But then the sentences that she puts together don't make any sense sometimes, so it's not easy. Same thing with, with, with these skills. It looks it looks simple, but it is not easy. It takes time. Absolutely, Lena. And it takes patience and it takes it takes being comfortable with the idea that you will fail. You you absolutely will. You will you will fail. You will screw up. You will go with your responses. You will have your amygdala go off. Um, you will have hor- or not responses, reactions. You'll have your amygdala go off. Language will fail you. You will be triggered. It'll happen. But knowing that it'll happen and then knowing what to do after that to fix it and knowing what to do next time, that's where the growth happens. Mm. That's, that's where the entrepreneurial stuff, that's where the pioneering and irreverent stuff happens. That's where the pioneering stuff happens because that's where you can figure out, okay, Where's the next frontier in this conversation? Exactly. Where's the next frontier in this relationship? So exactly, because I mean, it's it's actually the best place to screw up because you're you're growing, you're evolving, and if you're constantly aware of that conversation, what you were saying earlier, you fail seventy percent, you win seventy percent, but at least you're aware to make those shifts and changes that you need to make. If you're just reacting to that old school way of doing things, then you're still messing up equally as much as you would be doing this new action. But mm-hmm. you're, you're messing up on things that aren't going to push the needle. Mm-hmm. Daniel Goleman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence, there's, um, there's a passage in it which struck me. And um, I typically have this book sort of just hanging around next to me because it's just it's so amazing. Um, and he wrote this book back in the, in the 90s. And it still, it still strikes me. It still strikes me today when I, when I read passages from it um, in order to prepare for workshops and things that I'm doing because I, I re- and I reference it quite a bit and I can't, I don't see it sitting here anyway. And, and you know, when, when Daniel listens to this, um, he can, he can write me and tell me that I got it wrong, but, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the yeah, he did. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Anyway, um, but one of the things that um that he talks about in the book is um how um managers were surveyed, and one manager was said in the survey um that um he was afraid that if he utilized empathy, and notice the word afraid that I use there, you know, fear. Okay, he was afraid that if he utilized empathy in dealing with people that he was supervising, his supervisees, that he would be unable to make the hard decisions that are necessary in order to ensure the company's growth, in essence. Wow. What kind of thinking is that? And then, and then I looked up from this, from this book that I was reading, and I thought about the organizations that I work with, and they're still, I still work with managers in the same mindset. Mm. I still work with people that are there, and it's, how do you, I work in my business to move the needle away from that. And I, sometimes people have, have looked at me and have said, how are you going to, how are you going to monetize that? How are you going to monetize what you're doing? I say, I don't have to. <laughs> I live in a world of 6 billion people. <laughs> the monetization potential for human services, consulting and training is endless. It's endless monetization. Um, because guess what? There will always be one more person that will need these skills. And there will always going to be one more person that will need help moving that needle because they can't quite get there themselves. And then I point to the Daniel Goleman quote. I point to emotional intelligence. 25 years ago, it was still it was still being said, and it's still being said now. But the important thing, I think, is that people are starting to become aware of it. 
Yes, people are becoming aware of it. And I think, so look, there's a difference between what happened happened 25 years ago and what's happening now. Social mm-hmm. media is a huge leveler. It is a huge leveler. And we underestimate social media and social communication. Um, we underestimate sort of the level of disruption that's occurring with these new tools. We underestimate their impact. Um, there's ways that I, and we don't have enough, we haven't had enough years of Facebook yet to really look at the brains of people, you know, um, who over the long term, not over the short term, but over the long term, who have engaged with these forms of social media. But our brains are changing. I'm firmly convinced our brains are changing the same way our communication um communication methods are changing and so social media is this great leveler it it says both to the supervisor who can't use empathy and to make the hard decisions and to the supervisee who is just desperate for someone to use empathy in some kind of way it says to both of them you can go to this other space and vent mm-hmm. and so <laughs> the manager goes to social media to vent about how horrible his workers are or his supervisees are and then the supervisees go to uh go to social media to say how horrible the organization is. And they're both talking about the same things, but since they both don't share the same friend groups, although sometimes they do, but they don't <laughs> share the same friend groups, they're both not hearing each other. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Now, now instead of, instead of a physical boundary of miles or neighborhoods, now we've got a virtual boundary of people, which is slowly, slowly being broken down, slowly being broken down slowly being broken down. And some organizations recognize this, like Target. Target recognizes this. They're they're doing some great work um, in empowering their employees to be advocates for their brand, which is amazing. Um and uh and of course, you know, Google and Facebook and those kinds of organizations, you know, are doing some amazing work. But it's it's slow you're right, it's slowly starting to change. And I think the technology is is the disruptor there. The technology is forcing people to move in and, and organizations to move in, in different directions. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping the emotional intelligence piece comes along, though. I really am. I'm, I'm really hoping for that. So, mm. well, well, it's now just this, a matter of these two people, these two parties, seeing themselves and the other in the situation. And mm-hmm. and I know that we can go on into this conversation forever. And I just can't wait to ever. <laughs> I can't wait to tune into your podcast on this because the conversations <laughs> are just going to be so amazing. Oh yes, I can't. I can't wait for my podcast for a podcast to launch. Would you like me to talk a little bit yes. about that? Just for- Okay, well, um, I am launching a podcast in January 2010 called Earbud U. Get your knowledge on through your earbuds. And we'll be talking to a lot of different folks from a lot of different areas. So we've already begun lining up interviews, um, not only for next year, but also for this year. And so we're going to kind of drop it Netflix style. We'll have about 10 to 12 interviews launching in January that you'll be able to go, um, onto, uh, onto Earbud U and, uh, really take a look at those and listen to those and really hear people from, um, a wide variety of different backgrounds, like the arts, um, performance improvement, um, consulting. I've got a couple of musicians in there and some artists i've got a filmmaker in there um from your neck of the woods um who came in and did an interview um an interview with me really talking about sort of their lives how they how they um, navigate around conflict in their lives and how they're in essence making the world a better place um through the the little tiny niche that they are working in um and i'm fascinated by people who are 
working to make peace, but maybe not necessarily are labeled as peace builders or peacemakers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people that I talked to in one of the early interviews that I did, just to give you a little teaser, um, he came out of a family business um, for 20 years, was working inside of a family business. And you can imagine that kind of conflict. And so he talks a lot about sort of growing up in the family business and what that looked like and how he navigated those family conflicts while also having to work on multi-million dollar deals. Can't wait for the launch date on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Launching January 2015. There January we go. It's writing it out. Do you have a time? <laughs> is there a I, don't, I don't have a time quite just yet. I don't have a time just yet. I'll let you know. I'll keep you, I'll keep okay. you, I'll keep you up. Let me know and then I'll, I'll, I'll play the you. message forward. Okay. Brilliant. Well, Jason, how else can people connect with you and hear more about the work that you do and be part of this peace movement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first off, Thank you, Lena, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I love the Supernova, the Supernova podcast here. Um, I did, I did write down, you know, your purpose. Purpose-centered entrepreneurs ignite authentic experiences so they can take bold, courageous steps to create their story, share it with the world, and live their brand. I love all these words, ignite authentic experiences, bold, courageous, creating, story, sharing, um, and living. I love these terms, Lena, and you really got to the core of that here in your talk with me, and so thank you. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm just (laughs) fascinated by by the level of work that people are putting out there and how they're igniting authentic experiences and just creating this global movement. It's just breathtaking every time I meet an inspired supernova. Well, great. Well, thank you again for having me on the show. Um, if your listeners would like to connect with me and find out more about me, they can go to my website, www.hsconsultingandtraining.com. I post to my blog every single day. I blog every single day, once a day. Um, and that is the HSCT hashtag communication blog. You can also follow me on Facebook, HS Consulting and Training. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Sorrells79. That's S-O-R-R-E-L-L-S 79 on Twitter. Um, Twitter is huge for me. I love Twitter. Even with 140 characters, even though I'm a blogger, I still I love Twitter. Um, it's an amazing microblog and an amazing chance to uh, really connect with people. Finally, if you'd like to connect with me professionally and find out more about what I can do for your organization and find out sort of what my perspective is, although you've gotten a lot of that from Lena, but if you'd like to talk to me a little more personally, you can always message me on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. Just search for me, Hasan, J-E-S-A-N, Sorrells, S-O-R-R-E-L-L-S, and send me a LinkedIn request and we'll continue our chat. Finally, you can email me, Sorrells. that's all one word at hsconsultingandtraining.com. I love the way you did that. You just got such a radio voice. Like, you're so ready for the podcast. I'm, like, sitting here going, uh-oh. <laughs> it's about to put some hitting effects on my voice. <laughs> <laughs> got to put some effects on there. Uh-huh. Got to go into my um, <laughs> My wife always says, you know what, you got to stop doing a radio voice. You got to knock that off. You got to talk to me like a normal human being. <laughs> <laughs> well, it works beautifully. Well, thank you. And you know the choice lies with you. What are you going to make of it? How are you going to create this world, your business, your mission, your purpose, your marketing, your brand, your everything to fulfill this call, this call to greatness? Dr. William Arthur Ward once said, the gates of opportunity and advancement 
swing on these four hinges. They are initiative, industry, insight, and integrity. But none of that can happen if you don't step out of your own sweet way. If you don't stop fighting that war with yourself. If you don't surrender to the greatness of who you really are, of what the world really deserves from you, and the reason why people are so drawn to you. For more information on future podcasts, or to find out the story behind the story, head on over to www.menaski.com.